Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. As per usual, we're excited. Alina, tell everyone why. So we've got with us today Gregory Valdespino, who is currently finishing his PhD at the University of Chicago and is currently working on the history of France and Senegal. So we're really excited, something completely out of the box. Welcome. Hello, so excited to be here. Uh, it's like we we can't wait for this. We Obviously, everyone now has to approach the imperialism thing with great care and attention. Uh, so it's just a relief as a British person to fob it off on the French for once <laughs> to talk about how mean they were. I'm happy to talk about that. <laughs> Let's do it. I think the reason it's so important, it is on that West Coast, which means it will have slave trade connotations. What were the key trading points there? Yeah, so I mean, you kind of hit it right on the head. Like part of the reason that Senegal is so important in French colonial history and why it comes up so much is that it has the oldest contacts between France and, and West Africa dating back to the slave trade. Um, and so, I mean, there's records as far back as the 14th century of Norman sailors be, going to Senegal, but really kind of by the early 17th century, you have French outposts that are in what is now the island of Goree and then what is now the city of Saint-Louis in the north becoming the major kind of trading post. But they kind of, across the Senegalese, what is now the Senegalese coast in the 17th century and through the 18th century, you have French traders kind of in captives, traders and, traders and enslaved people um, cooperating with various kingdoms and, and sending thousands of people to Caribbean uh, colonies, in what is now Louisiana, what is now Haiti. Um, and so really what is now Senegal is the main site of French slavering activity from the monarchy through kind of the early 19th century, really. So I'm completely going to pronounce this wrong, but who were the Senares and what was their role? Yeah, so the Senares were, so in this slave trading network that emerges throughout the 17th and really flourishes in the 18th century, the Signore play this really key role. So the Signore are, they're women, um, first of all, very important. Um, and these are women who are often um, mixed race. So they're often French or other European and um, Wolof, and Wolof being one of the main linguistic and ethnic groups in Senegambia and what is now Senegal. And so these are um, women who just have an immense amount of power in these trading outposts. Um, and and then they have power in part because they they speak multiple languages, but also they are the key intermediaries for trade throughout the region. Um, and really, when I say key intermediaries, I mean in everything. They're kind of making sure that food gets to these outposts so that the French don't starve. They're making sure that water gets there. They're making sure that the French have – they're taking care of sick, old French men who are dying. They are running the books. They are managing the finances. They're managing – so it's – they are – really the power brokers um and they are famous infamous um for their participation in the slave trade but also just the immense amount of power that they wielded and and of course it wasn't unheard of for women to have a lot of power there are female monarchs in senegambia um but the signori just are they become so powerful because they are these cultural and financial intermediaries that really allow the global trade to operate in many ways in Senegal, in what is now Senegal. And they 
the most famous, one of the, one of the most famous being Anne Pepin, um, in the mid 18th century. She kind of, she was herself the daughter of another signore and she becomes kind of the partner, romantic partner, but also administrative and business partner of the French governor who gets stationed there. And she, and the French come and go. They don't stay for too long, a few years, and the signore stay. So they accumulate this power and Pepin accumulated finance and connections and knowledge. And she built the house that is on the island today, kind of commemorated as the Maison des Esclaves or House of Slaves. And it's the museum for the slave trade, but it's this, a lot of the houses there are kind of made and run by these women like Anne Pepin, who unfortunately the kind of with, by the 19th century, kind of patriarchal power takes over and they lose a lot of their financial control. But in 18th century, women like Anne Pepin are really these extremely powerful individuals who without it, the French would have just kind of been dying in their forts and really not been able to do anything um, and would have been completely isolated. And, and of course they're controversial because they were so uh, key to the slave trade, but there are this really interesting example of very, very powerful women as financial actors and political actors in the 18th century in a time where often we don't think of, certainly not African women are not often told as part of the story. And so they're really key for fuller understanding of what was going on in this time. We love it. We love strong women <laughs> on this podcast. Uh, I have to ask, what do or how do San Luis and Goray play a role in this narrative? Yeah, so they're really the key sites at the beginning. Um, so like I said, it's by the mid 70s. So Gore is an island off of what is called the Cap Verde Peninsula, which is where it's the westernmost point of the African continent. And Gore is a small island off the coast. Um, and then around the mid 17th century, after various wars with the Dutch and various other powers, the French take control. And around the same time in northern Senegal, on the border with what is now Mauritania, the city of San Louis emerges. And these are really the two main points of French administrative control um, during the period of the Atlantic slave trade and through the colonial period or the early colonial period. Um, and uh, San Louis being a really major slave exporting center. Um, and so a lot of, I mean, there's also, Gina, a lot of people from in Haiti can trace their lineage back to San Louis. Um, that's a side point. Uh, but there are these really, they're, they're really the only place the French have a serious strong foothold um, for a long amount of time. And the Signore are kind of part of this much bigger multicultural um, urban societies that develop there. And you see these along the West African and Central African coast. Um, you see it in Ouida, you see it in Cape Coast. Um, but these multilingual societies and often really small cities, but still cities and that have these powerful um, kind of indigenous uh, leaders as well as European traders who are kind of battling for influence, but also cooperating. And they develop these flourishing urban cultures um, in San Luis. I mean, it's just to go to these islands. It's so it's almost surreal because they look like the Caribbean. They have the architecture of the Caribbean. They have the verandas. It's the colorful walls. And so it really is these key connecting points for the French Atlantic. And so in some ways, San Luis and Gore are more connected to New Orleans or Port-au-Prince than they are to other parts of or anywhere in what is now Ghana or Nigeria. Um, and so there are these really important nodal points that connect 
um, the interior, the Wolof, Serer, Hapular communities on the interior of Senegambia to the Atlantic, but also connect the French with their outposts throughout the Atlantic world entirely. And so there are these vibrant sites that are really the key interaction points between France, its empire, and then the various kingdoms within Senegal. So tell us more about the four communes and why they are so important. Yeah, um, so the four communes kind of emerge out of these two cities. And so uh, by the end of the slave, when, when the slave trade, the, in, I should say the Atlantic slave trade ends um, in the early 19th century, um, the French undergo kind of an imperial crisis after losing um, what is now Haiti. There's kind of a few, they, they hold on to Gore and Saint-Louis, but for a while they're not quite sure what to do with it. Um, they try these various kind of experimental plantation schemes that are really exploitative and just bring in new enslaved labor, and they fail. And so the French just kind of are kind of fumbling around, not completely sure what to do in Senegal for a while. And then in 1848, there's a revolution in France. And finally, the French abolished slavery definitively. Um, they had done it in the 1790s, and then Napoleon backtracked famously, infamously. Um, and so they abolished slavery in 1848. And they still have control over over Gore and Saint Louis, and then, but they go further than abolishing slavery, and they declare all former slaves or people of African descent citizens, um, French citizens, if they're in these French colonies. And so suddenly, the people living in Gore and Saint Louis become citizens of France. They have the right to vote in the, in the 1848 period. Um, do they lose this during the empire when everybody loses the vote because Napoleon III is a dictator? Um, but then they regain it um, in the 1870s with the Third Republic. And at that time, two more cities are added to this roster of enfranchised communities, um, Rufisque and Dakar, which are very close to Gorée, so in the center, near the center of what is now um, Senegal. And they, all these four places get commune status. And what that means is that any individual born in these communes and their descendants are citizens. Um, and or they have citizen-like rights. It's their citizenship is often debatable um, and contested, but they have the right, for example, to use French courts. They can't have their land expropriated in the same way that others do. They can vote for local and national elections, so they have a representative in the National Assembly. Um, so really, the, the individuals in this four, four communes who are always a small minority, um, these... Only by the by the turn of the 20th century, they have maybe 40,000 people in all. So it's very small, um, especially compared to the rest of Senegal. But they have these really unique political privileges and rights. I, want, I don't want to say privileges, but rights um, that nobody else has in pretty much all of colonial Africa, um, except for parts of Cape Town until apartheid. Um, but... So they develop this really unique culture and political culture where they can make demands. I mean, they have a representative. They can they can kind of control the show, and it drives French colonial administrators crazy um, because these African and mixed-race political machines and political groups are just can constantly stop their projects or at least try to. Um, and they just – they have these really elaborate elections, and they, they're just – they're, they're very – they become very powerful, and they become – linked and they they collaborate and they work with the French regime, but they also push against them. And so they're intermediaries, but they have their own interests that they're pushing. And and I should say, just as a side, 
much like in France at this time, women, uh, women born in these communities don't have the right to vote. Um, they're not enfranchised. They can't vote. Um, and they lose a lot of their property rights, much like women in France, but they also play a really key role, um, in kind of hosting political events, hosting people in their homes, in kind of, once again, managing finances like their ancestors did. So women are also, even if it's not in the ballot box, um, playing a really key role in the political and cultural life of the four communes. Um, and they'll defend that right strongly in men and women. And when they, when the French try to take away and strip these rights in 1912, people lose their minds and get really furious. And when they're going to treat them like subjects and they're not, because in their mind, they're citizens, they're French and they deserve rights and respect just like any other French person. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, and they, and they really, they fight for that. And, and it gets contentious and often in very interesting moments. This is going to sound like a bonkers tangent, but it's not. And it's very topical because I'm sitting here eating peanut butter out of a jar with a spoon while I'm hooked on your every word. Peanuts, why are they important? Yeah. Uh, no, I want peanut butter. Um, oh, mate, it was the American stuff as well. I brought it back with me last time I was there. So it's like proper crunchy. I hate yeah. you. None I of this really sad British you. imitation peanut butter. I have the sad imitation peanut butter, the low calorie stuff in my uh, <laughs> Low calorie, no fun. Um, but yeah, so peanuts. Um, so, I mean, the peanuts are actually really linked to two of the communes that I mentioned, Akar and Rufisk. So when the slave trade gets abolished um, in the early 19th century, like I said, the French experiment with all these different financial ventures and a lot of them fail. One... Um, there's a gum Arabic trade, which is used for paints and various lubricants is pretty uh, lucrative for a while. But what really kind of becomes this main thing is peanuts. And in the mid 19th century, peanuts, which are from South America, get introduced in West Africa, um, in what is now Gambia and Senegal first. And it, and it just, be, it explodes. It's, it's, a, it's, it's perfect for the soil at the time. Um, it's, it's very low labor. It's, you only work a few months on um, peanut cultivation uh and it's and it's just perfect at the time for the climate um and and the reason it's so important is that it's peanut peanuts are delicious peanut butter is delicious uh but peanut oil is really what's important um and so this is france is industrializing in the mid-19th century and peanut oil is a really key industrial lubricant um and uh so it becomes so in a way it france's industrialization becomes linked and dependent to kind of exploitation of Senegalese land and labor. And so suddenly this crop that didn't exist before gets introduced and become takes over the Senegalese landscape um, and becomes the main export. Senegal becomes one of the world's largest exporters of peanuts, continues to be, um, even though it's decreased significantly since the 1970s. Um, and peanuts, I mean, it's hard to understate I mean, I don't understand all of the details because peanuts, it's so scientific. <laughs> There's only so much you can read before you start to glaze over, right? Absolutely. Um, but peanuts really transform almost everything in Senegal. Um, because, the, it, like I said, they're a short cultivation period. Um, they change the landscape and they just, all the dynamics, because it's an agricultural society, when, when, an, in a new, when a new product is introduced, new social dynamics emerge around it. And so it becomes a way for people to kind of, it's easy to get peanuts. And so you have all these people who are former slaves or 
um, kind of second, or like in children who want to break out from their parents, or even women who want to break out from abusive or controlling patriarchs, they can become peanut farmers. They can get involved in peanut cultivation because it's 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 two months of the year, so it's relatively easier to cultivate. Um, you can get it's easy to find, and so you have this breaking up, and peanuts kind of transforms the social landscape. But then in order to get the crops in the first place, you have to buy them from Brit- from French traders. I almost said British. My apologies. Um, <laughs> no, we're trashing the French imperialists today. French today. Um, <laughs> so they buy them from the French, but they go into debt um, in order to do that. So you, even if the peanuts in some way allow some people to strike it, like strike new or for communities to kind of find new economic bases that undermine older bu- kingdoms or household dynamics, they end up in debt. And so they end up kind of dominated by these Bordeaux merchants who are selling them the peanuts. And so it's this kind of, and of course, over time, it does erode the quality of the soil. So it's this really transformative and it's almost insidious crop. Um, I mean, it's got positives and it's like, and it now becomes kind of a staple of, of Senegalese cuisine. You can just get the most amazing peanuts anywhere in Senegal. It's just, it's fantastic. Um, but its history is really kind of in, traps people in these relationships of debt that become really kind of overwhelming over time. Um, but so then, hungry after listening to this. <laughs> oh my God, Alex. <laughs> Thinking about oh, your stomach yeah. right now. I'm sitting there with peanut butter in front of me. Where's the jam? Thinking if there's only... Are you having it with like toast or anything? No, just with a spoon. It's a better snack than like eating chocolate and stuff. It's better for you. But I don't think in quantity. It's good spreading it on an apple. It's amazing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's like my bodybuilder friend's recommended snack when you're feeling like a craving for something sweet. Anyway, this isn't all about my stomach. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Um, We're supposed to be moving on to the Islamic Brotherhood. Do it. You do it. Okay, so... Uh, where does the Islamic Brotherhood come into all of this? Yeah, um, so it's actually, as with everything in Senegal, it's tied to peanuts almost. Um, so the peanut trade gives, so, Islam, so I'll, I'll back up. The Islamic Brotherhoods, and it, they're these Islamic orders um, that are in Sufi orders that have origins kind of all across the world, um, or the Muslim-speaking world. Um, and they become very influential in Senegal uh, by the 19th century. And so there are, f- there, there are kind of four major ones. is kind of the Kadiria, the Tijania, uh, the Layin, and the Murids um, are kind of these four. There are these Muslim orders, and they have, and each one has these kind of charismatic founders, and they have distinct ideologies and principles, all, all Sufi Muslim, but very different. Um, and they start growing in influence throughout the 18th century, in part because the, the monarchy, the Senegalese and Senegambian monarchies are getting really delegitimized by their cooperation with the French and participation in the slave trade. And so these Islamic brotherhoods become these kind of counter powers who are really critiquing these and leading rebellions against the French and the monarchies. And these flare up in the late 18th century and they flare up again in the mid-19th century. But what the difference in the mid-19th century is that the peanut is there. Um, and with the peanut, like I said, it's relatively, it's labor intensive, but it's a short growing period. It's not the most difficult thing to grow is that, and because these brotherhoods have these really kind of 
they're really influential and their followers are really kind of loyal, they're able to get their followers to work the fields um, for two months a year. And so not only do they kind of politically push out the monarchy and the aristocracy, the old Wolof aristocracy, but they gain economic power um, through the peanut trade. And, th and these two things together really force the French to deal with them in a way that the French might not have wanted to otherwise. And so they're just too powerful to ignore. And they try, the most famous uh, brotherhood is, are the Murid, and um, created by Amadou Bamba, who is this charismatic uh, Islamic intellectual. And the French imprison him multiple times, but his brotherhood is just so powerful and they're so wealthy with the peanut trade that they just can't ignore him anymore. Um, and they can't malign him as much as they would like. And so they have to start accommodating these brotherhoods and they, they kind of end up in this tense alliance with them where kind of they produce peanuts and the taxes on that help the colonial state, the exports help the colonial state at times of war, the Muslim brotherhood will, the Muslim brotherhoods will kind of encourage their members to go to war, but the French don't really interfere in kind of the affairs of these brotherhoods as much as they would like, or as much as they might've done in Algeria they kind of often let these brotherhoods kind of just kind of operate on their own and they, have, they kind of make cities where the French don't really go. They make spaces where the French can't really interfere. The French actually start turning against Catholic missionaries in favor of the, bro the Islamic brotherhoods because they're so powerful and they worry that the Catholics are going to piss off the Muslim brotherhoods. So they just become really strong um, and in a way that the French just have to accommodate um, and you see this in modern Senegalese politics as well. Why does Dakar become so important in 1902? Yeah, and you're, you might be surprised, but the peanuts are again uh, central to this. Um, but <laughs> I feel like there have to be, you know, we were debating how to do like a non-offensive cartoon for this podcast. Peanuts will have to feature. I'm, I would just Mr. Peanut in a pith helmet. Um, yep. I was actually excited. I thought you weren't going to say peanuts. I thought you were going to say the Dakar <laughs> rally. But the Dakar rally, I don't, don't think, starts till like the 70s. So I'm about 70 years out. Yeah, no, it's it's a bit later. We're at the wrong end of the 20th century for her. She's <laughs> yeah, like, she has no comprehension. They do have electricity by this point, though, Alina. Yeah, in a real <laughs> um, Thanks for that. <laughs> but uh, so <laughs> up to that point, Saint-Louis was um, the center of the French colonial administration in Senegal and really the base from since the 1850s where the French were kind of running their whole West African empire, really. Um, but Dakar is increasingly becoming, because it's in the center of the peanut region, and it's a port, it's a really good port compared to Saint-Louis, which is not an ideal port. Um, it becomes just, it's mass, it's sending out massive amounts of peanuts. And so it's just infrastructure grows, it grows in wealth. Um, and also St. Louis is, to go back to the four communes, the indigenous and mixed race community there are really influential. Um, and so the French colonial powers are kind of frustrated with their inability to control the city, um, the, the inability to segregate the city. And so in 1902, they make Dakar the capital of French West Africa. Um, which is a federation of all of the colonies and all the eight, I believe, colonies in French West Africa. And Dakar becomes the capital of that. Saint Louis remains the capital of Senegal, but Dakar becomes the capital of the whole federation. Um, and so it really becomes, it grows 
by 1914, it has around 30,000 people, which might sound small, but it's pretty big by considering this is a really rural community um, colony. And Dakar becomes the new center of the, the French empire in Africa. And the colonists have dreams of turning it into kind of a new Hanoi or new Algiers and kind of big boulevards and making it a new colonial capital. But again, they run into indigenous communities that are enfranchised and resist with all their might, often not successfully, sometimes successfully, uh, colonial ambitions. But really, after 1902, Dakar becomes kind of the center of French colonial politics, really not just, arguably not just in Senegal, but in West Africa entirely. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Something happens by 1914, not the First World War, Alex, because... I'm just thinking peanuts. (laughs) Still peanuts? (laughs) They're always there. They're always in the background. (laughs) So something happens by 1914. What is it and why is it an important turning point? Yeah. Um, so 1914 is kind of this key year for 5,000 different reasons in Senegal. Um, but the most famous one is a, a really intense election. So like I said, for communes, they have a representative in the National Assembly and Dakar becomes a really big site of political contestation. Um, and... But throughout the preceding decades, the representative in in the National Assembly was usually either white or mixed race. And they were Matisse, as they say. Um, And they were representatives of kind of machine politics, uh, usually connected to Bordeaux merchant houses. And so a lot of younger African voters or other indigenous voters who were having land taken away from them or were kind of facing racist obstructions to their efforts to advance in their careers or just their daily lives are getting really frustrated by the fact that they can vote, but it doesn't seem to be in their interest. It doesn't seem to be representing them. And so there's this kind of demand for what some people have called like black African politics. Um, And so in 1914, someone comes onto the scene who really changes everything. And his name is Blaise Giannier. Um, And he, born in Senegal, um, he had worked in the colonial service throughout the French Empire, went to school in Senegal as well as in France. And he comes back to Senegal to run for office, to become the deputy. And all of these voters rally, rally around him. And the French and the Matisse political machines freak out. They, like, really panic um, and they think that like he's, he, we can't let this happen, but they're so fractured that 
they can never get their stuff together. They can never really get organized enough to stop him. And he wins. Uh, he wins the election by only a few hundred votes um, in an extremely contested election. And suddenly he, and he becomes the first black African representative in the French National Assembly. Um, and he becomes, suddenly the political landscape seems to be transformed. Uh, and the French colonial administration continue to fight this. Uh, they continue to kind of struggle with him, but he, and he makes serious compromises that can be criticized, but he guarantees the, by 1916, he guarantees um, the citizens of these communes that are guaranteed their citizenship and they can't be revoked. He becomes really key in kind of West African involvement in World War One, which is controversial. Um, but really, it's the emergence of kind of Black African politics on the French scene um, in a way that was never that never existed before. So it's this real major turning point politically. And then we do have World War One, which is a huge deal for Senegal. I've visited many Senegalese graves on the Western Front. Uh, tell us exactly what happens. Yeah. Um, so it's the, so it's the same time, right around the time that. Um, Blaise Janier gets elected. Um, only a few months later, there is a, the the war breaks out, as we know. Um, and the French, unlike other colonial powers, really want to lean on using their colonial populations as not just uh, workers but soldiers, um, and specifically African soldiers. Um, and there's a long tradition of what are called the tirailleurs senegalais, so Senegalese riflemen. Um, and to be clear, these are not all Senegalese, only by World War One, only 30% of them are from what is now Senegal. There's a lot from Mali or Guinea or Ivory mm-hmm. Coast. Um, but they're called the Tirailleurs Senegalais because Senegal is where they were often trained. Um, and for, it, they send thousands and thousands and thousands of troops, um, to the, to, to Europe. Um, and throughout Africa, but the most notable is in Europe. And there's massive resistance to this, often extremely violent, um, throughout West Africa, um, because the soldiers don't want to serve. They don't want to serve a power that had just kind of obliterated them. Um, but, and this is where Blaise Janier comes in again, is he becomes a recruiter and he kind of starts making demands that, in an expectation that if these men serve, they, if not citizens, they will have rights. They will have certain privileges and they, you have to respect them in certain ways, which becomes, even though it's not necessarily respected, it becomes this major, major point of politics of the, the blood debt. And so this idea that these thousands and thousands and thousands of Senegalese and other West African soldiers who go to France, fight valiantly, die um, far from home, um, sometimes never repatriated. Um, they have a blood debt and Fran- France owes them. Uh, and this, and you still hear this today. I mean, in, in, in World War One, is this massive turning point where suddenly these veterans, these soldiers and veterans say like, we serve your country and now you're just going to treat us like subjects and, for- and send us into forced labor. Um, and so it's this moment of rising demands, but also serious rising um kind of anger and disenchantment with the promises of French equality um, that we still see to this day. I mean, people still reference World War I um, when they're talking about the obligation of France to West Africans and in France and in Senegal. I hear it. I mean, I heard it during the FIFA World Cup. It's like, we were the soldiers in France. Like, that's why, of course, we were good for the French team, but they have to send our players. I mean, it's just like, it's a constant refrain. 
Um, and it all comes back to World War One. So what happens in the interwar years then? Um, yeah, so the, like, so the interwar years, uh, in many ways, kind of a product of those promises and those frustrations, you start to see uh, the emergence of what becomes anti-colonial politics. Um, and I think Senegal plays a unique place just because the political establishment there is so different than the rest of West Africa. Um, but also the education system there is a bit more robust and so in, and also migration between France and Senegal is a lot more robust. And so in, in France, you have a small but pretty, pretty vocal community, Senegalese and West African community starting to, in the interwar you're starting to think through anti-colonial politics and two, um, Senegalese migrants kind of become emblematic, at least in my mind, of these strands of anti-colonial politics. Um, and one is himself a veteran. Uh, Lamine Senghor, who uh, in the 1920s starts to espouse, he works with the Communist Party, he goes to anti-colonial um, kind of conventions, Pan-African conventions, and he espouses a really radical anti-colonialism, a communist-inspired anti-colonialism. He makes these wonderful, like, anti-colonial comic books um, that gets to that get distributed in Senegal, and the authorities freak out when they find deliveries of them. But he becomes this very radical voice of, and it's about, it's really rooted in World War One. of like, we died for this country. He was wounded in the war, a wound that ultimately uh, likely led to his death years later. Um, and so he was kind of leading these voices of just total disenchantment and total fury at France and a desire to just upend the whole system. Um, so that's a very radical political stance. That, and unfortunately, he dies very young, and so he can't take... He was a very charismatic speaker and writer, and, but he dies in the late 20s, and so he can't, unfortunately, go any further. And then the other kind of notable figure is another Senghor, um, but not related um, to my knowledge, Leopold Senghor, who is a very different story. He's uh, educated in colonial schools in Senegal. He himself is not from one of the four communes, but he is Catholic and French. he's Francophone. Uh, and he is brilliant and gets scholarships to go to France. There, are, For a few decades, there are these systems of scholarships for Senegalese students to France, and he gets one of these and studies kind of French anthropology, the French poetry, French literature, African literature, African art. This is a moment of kind of African art is very in vogue in France. Um, Picasso and a lot of modernists are using African masks. And he meets in Paris all these other black um, expats and students uh, from the French Caribbean, from other parts of French Africa, African-Americans, um, and most famously, Aimé Césaire um, and Léon Damas. And they form together what is called negritude, which is kind of a cultural anti-colonialism. So it's not quite the political valence and intensity of Lamine Senghor, but it is very intense. And it's this kind of valor, it's a refutation of kind of European and French condemnations of African culture as having no merit, no history, no value. Um, and negritude is really celebrating kind of the beauty and power and depth of African culture as like a key point of reclaiming identity and power from the French and the Europeans writ large. And they write just these marvelous, powerful poems. And they participate in these salons, often run by the Nardal sisters, who are these Martinican women, um, and really articulating this cultural anti-colonialism, pan-Africanism, 
that's going to become major um, in post-war France and even, I mean, and still to this day. So these are kind of the two anti-colonial currents that Senegalese intellectuals are kind of producing in the interwar period. They say after the interwar comes the Second World War. What happens then? Um, so the French lose uh, quickly, um, as many people know, and the French like to forget sometimes. Um, but Let, Let's remind them. <laughs> Me too. So for those who don't know, in, by... By June 1940, after two months, uh, the French get blitzkrieg and defeated by the Germans. Um, and this is kind of a shock. And if to, I mean, it, it really undermines their authority in the empire because they hold on to the empire, but suddenly their authority is so undermined because they're they're a colonized colonizer. The Germans are kind of running France at the same time the French are trying to run their empire. Um, and so in Africa, it's very contentious because. In Central Africa, the governor, who is himself a uh, black Guinean, uh, uh, from uh, not Guinean, Guiana, Guinean from Guyana, mm-hmm. uh, he rallies to de Gaulle. He does not side with Vichy. Um, whereas in French West Africa and Dakar, they do side with Vichy. Um, and so there's this tension between French West Africa, which is Vichy aligned, and French Central Africa, which is de Gaulle aligned. And in, 19, in September, de Gaulle tries to kind of organize this invasion of Dakar that does not go well for him. They lose. It's kind of the only major bat, World War II battle in um, Senegal, but it leaves a mark on the city and the memory of people there. And then, But throughout World War II, it's really kind of this serious disillusionment on the part – I mean, if World War I was already disillusionment, it really – because the regime is – the French regime before pretended to be egalitarian um, and gave promises of equality. But in during World War II, Vichy doesn't even try to do that. They strip the citizenship rights of the people from the four communes. Um, it's just this – it's really regressive, really violent. I mean, it's a fascist regime. I mean, colonialism is also arguably a fascist regime. Um, but I think for a lot of people in West Africa, World War II in Senegal kind of showed them – the limits uh, and kind of, I've heard say the mask was taken off of French colonialism um, and, and and everything kind of comes up to question after that. It does. And you've already mentioned Leopold Senghor. Mm. Tell us about what he did in terms of independent Senegal. Yeah. So he is a really kind of important figure. So he's important in the interwar period. And then, after World War II, he becomes a politician. He enters politics, remains a poet, a poet politician his whole life. Um, and he, after World War II, franchises extended through, to women. First, the, the women finally get the right to vote in France and its colonies. Um, and then the rest, a lot of citizenship is extended throughout the empire. And in Senegal, this means beyond just the four communes. And Senghor becomes one of the elected officials for Senegal in rewriting the constitution. And then he just becomes an increasingly powerful political figure throughout the 1950s, um, ultimately becoming Senegal's first president in 19, when, it, when it becomes independent in 1960. Um, and he, so he espoused this cultural pan-Africanism, anti-colonialism, but he's also a Francophile, a, a serious Francophile. He speaks French pretty much in his daily life, even though he speaks multiple languages. Um, he writes poetry in French. 
He spends a lot of time in France and he, he espouses a love for French culture, even while acknowledging kind of the horrors of colonialism and racism. And so when he becomes the president, he wants to maintain close relations with France. Um, and he wants to promote French language. And he, so a lot of French officials remain in independent Senegal's government. Uh, they, he maintains really close ties between uh, French institutions, kind of French research institutions that are, that were created in the 1950s in Senegal. And he's been thoroughly criticized this by many on the left in Senegal, that he was too pro-French. He was not anti-colonial enough when you compare him to uh, Secretore in Guinea, for example. Um, and I think that's a fair and interesting critique. Um, but he really does maintain throughout the 20 years that he's president, a very kind of pro-French Francophile regime. Um, and he ends up being, he ends up retiring in France. He has a wife who's from Normandy and he ends up retiring there after he um, transfers power in 1980. So 1960s and 70s, mm -hmm. something happens to the Senegalese workers. What happens? Yeah. So, I mean, part of this closeness uh, that maintains France, between France and its African colonies uh, is that Senghor facilitated, but it also is facilitated on a much larger scale, is an agreement in decolonization treaties that uh, free circulation between France and its former colonies in, in West Africa. And what this means is that workers can go to France with far fewer regulations than workers from other countries in the world. And so it's relatively easy for Senegalese workers to go to France in the 1960s when there's an industrial boom in France. And to return to the peanut that we haven't mentioned in a while, um, <laughs> There's, as I said, peanuts are really kind of corrosive on the soil. And so you're starting to see a drought. I mean, peanut cultivation is kind of beginning to dry up in Senegal. And so there's a real kind of horrible, deadly crisis emerging in parts of the Senegal River Valley, um, which is not just in Senegal. It's Senegal, Mauritania, and Mali. You're seeing this crisis. And so there's this mass exodus throughout the 1950s and really picking up steam in the 1960s of people from these regions. And because of these agreements with the French government, they can get to France relatively easily. Um, this is a completely parallel with the windrush in the UK and the absolutely. influx into the UK as well, isn't it? Totally, totally. And, and you also see similar things with um, the French Caribbean. But it is, it's, it's, it's this exact same time. And then you see these conflicts that you see with windrush where these people, even though they're no longer citizens of France, they still cons they consider themselves connected. And often, I mean, I've seen interviews from the 60s where people will once again cite, my grandfather served in World War I for France. He died in the Somme. Like, we have the right, we shouldn't be living in, they lived in very, very, very difficult conditions once they got to France. And they're kind of declaring that we, we might be citizens of a new country, but we also have these attachments to France. And then there's also tensions with the Senegalese government throughout the 60s. And so these working populations that grow, so I don't have exact figures, but maybe around 20,000 by the mid-1960s in Paris. Um, so once again, small, but pretty, but still pretty large and pretty visible. Um, and you have kind of political figures, most famously Sally and Dongo, um, who are leading kind of these workers to organize, uh, to improve their living conditions, to improve their working conditions, to make demands on both the French and the Senegalese state to take care of them. And it really lays the groundwork for 
um, even when these migration rights are stripped by the French government in 1974, it lays the groundwork for kind of the political dynamics, but also just the demographics. And, and now there's a much larger West African community in France. I mean, anybody who's been to Paris or Marseille or pretty much any, it's notable. I mean, you hear Wolof, you see Senegalese food, and it's really in the 60s and 70s that, that the groundwork for that is laid as well. I mean, and once again, like in Windrush, the contest, the political contestations are laid there and they continue to this day, unfortunately. Um, some things don't change. Thank you so much for coming on and giving us a whistle stop, but completely like <laughs> intellectually challenging and was, I don't want to say coherent because that makes it sound like I expected you to be a rambling weirdo <laughs> eloquent, that was the word I was looking for eloquent description of the last 200 years or so 250 years in Senegal because we badly needed some more African history that wasn't about Egypt and you have obliged us, thank you very much. Oh thank you so much and thank you for, the, I, this podcast is so wonderful I'm, I'm amazed at how much content you make and I'm just enjoying it so much so it's really an honour and just so much fun to be part of this and uh, I hope you think of me when you have peanuts next time Well I'm thinking of you now with my peanut butter in front of me and I know Lena's going to try and find some now, she's probably not even going to come back and say goodbye, she's got her head in the cupboard <laughs> I'm, I'm here I'm waiting for us to finish and then I'm going to go downstairs and grab the peanut butter wonderful join us tomorrow when we will be with Helen Antrobus talking about women and revolt and fashion and the tie-in between what women wore basically when they were kicking off really interesting so don't miss that we are now on YouTube we are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms so you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time one particularly great thing about it is that we have organised everything into categories so if you just want to listen to all of our World War II shows you can do so or there's ancient history or there's TV tie-ins if you just have a hankering for famous people so you can select what interests you the most and listen to it in one go so do go over there and subscribe don't forget you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com it will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus and we would really appreciate it as we would love to do so Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.